Welcome to Press On Podcast with Mike Woodruff, where Mike and invited guests share insights to cultivate a biblical perspective and thoughtful resilience in challenging times. Well, welcome back to the Press On Podcast. Uh, my name is Mike Woodruff, and I am very glad today to have a chance to talk with Dr. Bill Riken, who is a theologian, an author, and the president of Wheaton College. Dr. Riken uh, did his undergrad at Wheaton and then did a master's degree of divinity at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary and a PhD at Oxford in historical theology. Uh, joined the pastoral staff at uh, 10th Press in Philly in 1995 and became senior pastor there in 2000 following the death of James Montgomery Boyce. Um, he became in 2010 Wheaton's eighth president. He is a member of many boards and associations and all of those things. He has a, uh, a national radio and internet broadcast called Every Last Word, and he has written over 50 books. So, Phil, this is not as much fun as the last time we were together. Do you remember when we were together last? Ooh, no, you're going to have to remind me. Well, we were together, and this uh, we were together, I, I was reflecting on this, once at a CT event with uh, Phil Vischer and Sky Jatani, but then we were together in the uh, McCaskey box for a Chicago Bears oh, okay, Monday night sure. football yeah. game. Yeah, no, it was a good game. The Bears beat the Vikings. It was one of the only games we won that year. So Right. And I, I went back to the McCaskies and said, hey, look, you know, you you invite a bunch of Chicago clergy and you win. I mean, just saying, we'll show up again if uh, you roll out the owner's box. Hey, we're lucky in a biblical, providential kind of way. That's the way I would put it. So <laughs> okay, I, well. uh, I enjoyed seeing my wife who is a lifelong Chicago Bears fan, sing the fight song with uh, Gretchen McCaskey and a couple yep. other members of the family. So it was a fun night. I said to, uh, I said to Sherry, my wife, um, so people should know there's, there's actually two McCaskey boxes, the one that Virginia sits in, and that's very quiet. And we were not ushered into that, you know, inner sanctum. But then the kids, I guess there's six McCaskey kids and they each get a game, however they however they rotate it, they they each get to invite people. And so Pat and Gretchen McCaskey who attend Christ Church. Uh, it was a Monday night game, and so the the McCaskey said we finally got to invite all the the clergy. So in addition to Dr. Eichen and myself, there was a Catholic cardinal and Wayne Gordon, uh, Coach Gordon, who runs uh, Lawndale and all that. So. Yeah, I, and I said to Sherry at the end, I go, you know, if you were sort of just, you know, riding me to the to as far as I was going to be able to take you, I think the owner's box in the Chicago Bears for a Monday night game, now's the time to leave me behind that. because yeah. I don't think I can take you anywhere more special than that. No, well, it was tons of fun. Yeah, that was good. Um, and then, thank you. We did not see each other. You preached at Christ Church, but that was early in COVID, and that was all by video. Um, and I'll return to that in a little while. But um, when you said, when when you or your office or somebody agreed that you would come on the podcast, I went out and ordered two of your books. Uh, I ordered a book on Exodus, which I've been 
I'm going to preach on Exodus uh, starting this fall. So I'm deep into Exodus and thought, oh, well, that'll be easy. I'll pick that up. And I've been reading so much in Exodus, I can quickly dispatch with that. Wrong. 1,200 pages. <laughs> Fortunately, I also bought Art for God's sake, 57 pages. So I made a very quick executive decision um, to, to go with art. But I have read more than 57 pages of your Exodus commentary and uh, and, and appreciate it. And I, I will read hundreds, I'm sure, because I have, um, I have a good part of this year that I'll be in Exodus. So um, I wondered, before I leave Exodus behind, I, I don't know when you preached on Exodus. It obviously was, you know, 15 years ago. But recently, uh, I started preparing, I don't know, nine, 12 months ago, started reading through Exodus and thinking about this. And about six months ago, I, I was a little bit shocked. I thought, man, everybody is preaching on Exodus all, all of a sudden. And it's not just all these pastors that I know that are preaching on Exodus. But all these public people, so Jordan Peterson, the, the Canadian psychiatrist who's got the big internet following, he is giving lectures on Exodus. And Dennis Prager, the talk radio, conservative Jewish talk radio guy, he's got a commentary out on Exodus. And then Leon Cass, University of Chicago, great books, uh, you know, guy, he comes out with his big 800-page book on Exodus. And I was like, why is Exodus suddenly so trendy? I, I feel a little, I'm a little miffed because it looks like I'm just being a, you know, I'm just adding on. I'm, I'm just doing the trendy thing. And I try not to, I try instinctively not to do the trendy thing, but I'm going to do the trendy thing. So why, any ideas why Exodus would suddenly be popping right now? Yeah, so super interesting comment. I wasn't aware of that, so I'll try to pay attention to uh, all the places Exodus might show up. I Of the three people you just mentioned, I can think of probably three different reasons why they might have uh, tapped into Exodus. And it's maybe a reminder of how rich the book of Exodus is. There's an amazing story that runs pretty much up through chapter 24. Then somewhat separate from that, there's the whole section that describes how to make a tabernacle and then basically that all gets repeated you kind of get a uh, a double shot of the tabernacle in the last 16 chapters of exodus because the, first you have the instructions then they actually construct it and it's it's seems in a way a bit uh redundant um so there are a lot of different things in exodus it's an amazing book that way i'm i would imagine jordan peterson uh may be attracted to it because of its law it's giving a moral code, uh, particularly in chapter 20 and in the following chapters, the case laws of, of Exodus. So if you want to know how does the Judeo-Christian world think about moral standards, Exodus is an amazing place to start with that. Exodus also is a very significant book for the African-American community uh, because the African-American community in this country has viewed uh, its experience through the lens of Exodus. And of course, the same is true for the Jewish community. Um, you know, the experience of bondage and deliverance, then later the experience of exile and return. I mean, these are the big, these are the big moves of the Old Testament scriptures, and they are absolutely alive um, in the mindset of, of most Jewish communities, and particularly ones that are religiously devout. 
I've just returned uh, from a trip this summer to Poland with, uh, with some friends from Jewish community in Chicago, as well as evangelical and Catholic leaders. And uh, Exodus was not our main reference point as we visited um, various places, but it certainly was a reference point. So I think there may be a few different reasons to be in Exodus. I think the best reason for a congregation to be in Exodus is because that story plays itself out in our own spiritual experience, bondage and redemption, uh, entrance into the presence of God, the sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit wants to do on, in us through the moral law. That, that whole narrative, that, that takes place somewhere in the geography of the human soul. So um, I, I'm glad you're doing Exodus, and I would imagine your congregation is going to have an amazing experience with it, too. Well, your, your energy there makes me think that uh, you might miss pastoral ministry. Well, I certainly get plenty of opportunities to preach. I'll tell you one thing that is true, though, and you likely have had the same experience. It's not really till you get to the end of preaching through a book that you really understand it. And you're yeah. like, oh, I'd like to start all over again. Start all over. I, yeah. yeah. And but for if you're particularly if you've got a long serving pastorate, it, it may be. I mean, I think, you know, you preach through a book like Exodus, you get one main shot at that. You may go back to some of those passages, but you're not going to do the whole thing again. No. So I, I think it's um, challenging as a pastor to understand a book beginning to end as well as you need to to start. Right. Uh, a series. And I feel the same way about a preaching series that I feel, frankly, about just about every sermon I've ever preached, which is, wow, I'd like to do that again. I could do better. Uh, I understand it better now. So, Right. There's, what do they say? Three sermons. There's the sermon that you preach. There's the sermon people hear. And then there's the sermon that you give to yourself as you're driving home after church saying, this is what I should have said. And yeah, that's right. There you go. Well, I, I do think I, I, I just have been finishing up the first, I, I, I drafted the first seven or eight sermons and I was going back to finish up the first one. And I had some of those ideas, you know, why are we in Exodus? This, this is a long book. It was written, you know, thousands of years ago and it doesn't have anything to say about uh, the Ukraine war or, you know, Twitter or whatever is, is trending. But I said, well, I mean, first of all, it's it's obvious. it's the word of God. So it's living and active and, and we, we we preach it because there's value there. But secondly, it's such a great story. It's so powerful. It's so rich. And it is our story. And then there's a sense in which it's the Western civilization's story. It's foundational. But I, I also thought it people are returning to it now. The Jordan Peterson, the Dennis Prager, the maybe less so Leon Castle, although he comes at it from a political science vantage point. And they all come at it from their very, you know, as I'm listening to them, they all have their own worldviews and their own perspectives. But a society breaks down and you want to go back and say, wait, what are we trying to do here? And how does this work? And what does it mean to be free? Uh, I mean, these are just the foundation. In that sense, it's like Plato's Republic. It's like, I mean, it's just like any of these great foundational texts that you look at and you say, well, there was more here than I realized until I realized how much I just took for granted that this book was giving me. And I hadn't realized this was where it sort of got established. God establishing a people and, and uh, within a land with laws. And we need this. You could make an argument that uh, the story of the Exodus is the epic of the Western world. 
you could make a case for that. And you read Epic partly because it's a great story, but you also go back to it to discover who you are. So uh, it makes sense to me that we would be going back to the Exodus, as you mentioned, particularly at a challenging time culturally. Yeah. Well, so when I was reading uh, Art for God's Sake, uh, I, I I had a couple questions. I, it was not lost on me that uh, there's a lot of Exodus 31 in here. And I thought, okay, I'm not sure which came first, the, the commentary on Exodus or this art book, but I'm sure you were pulling out the notes from one when you were working on the other. What, what, was, the, what was the context? I mean, is art a passion of yours? Is art, you were asked to speak on this topic. What led you to say, I'm going to write a book. I mean, it's a small book. I'm going to offer a reflection. I wondered if this was a talk you gave or a series of lectures you gave. Yeah. What was the context? Yeah. Well, uh, so yeah, it's easy to say. So um, I had been preaching through Exodus, came to the story of Bezalel and Aholiab and their, how they were spiritually equipped for the artistic calling that God had given them. And um, we've got a, we had a fair number of artists in our congregation in Philadelphia, opera singers, dancers occasionally, um, visual artists, gallery owners, just uh, members of the Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra, like a lot of different things. So uh, one of my art teachers came up, he was teaching high school art at a local Christian high school, and he came up pretty excited after the service. He said, hey, can I get those notes? You ought to, you ought to publish that. And so I, I took that seriously. And I think a lot of the best um, you know, writing, teaching for the church, which I'm not putting this in the category of, I'm just saying there's there's something here. It's it's not when you're trying to do it in the abstract, it's when you're doing it for particular people that you care about and, and you want to see them grow spiritually and you've got them in mind. That That's what really brings the authenticity. So I, I took his request seriously. And what I did was I, I worked a bit on that core message, expanded it a bit, and then I sent it out to a bunch of friends in photography, vocal, film, and um, estheticians. You know, there were, I don't know, probably eight people I sent it out to. And I said, give me your comments, give me your illustrations, give me your critique. And that helped, um, you know, fill it out a little bit more. But it, it had a dual purpose. It was for Christians in the arts to affirm their calling, but also, um, and, and kind of give give Christian artists a book that they could give to two kinds of friends. Christian friends that just didn't understand that their calling in the arts was a serious calling in a good way for a Christian to spend a lifetime. And friends in the arts who weren't Christians, they didn't quite understand like the, their aesthetic sensibilities or where they were coming from as a Christian. Um, and I definitely have talked to people that have used the book in in uh, both of those, both those ways. ways. Yeah, we have... Um... I guess I have three quick data points here. When I was a campus pastor, uh, came aware at some point that the least reached community in the college environment were the artists. And we just didn't really know how to reach, reach them. And we have a, one of the campus pastors here, uh, very talented. He's a very talented musician and he's also a very talented artist he's a professional artist and he teaches art now at the local at a local college lake forest college um, and he's in galleries around he's very talented and he he has done some things and sort of 
nurtures the artistic community. And every fall we have a, we have a showing and, you know, so the, the, this, this fall the sermon series is going to be on this and we're looking for artists to turn in, you know, whatever they want to do, however they're going to respond to this. And that's been, appreciate him fostering that community. But I, I guess I'll say, I, I feel like there was a memo that went out a few years ago and I didn't get it, but so I, I'm, I'm just suddenly hearing everybody talk about beauty and it, it was such a big topic in my, you know, in my sort of non, um, low church, uh, I intersect with the, the faith. And when I came to faith, the topic, the topic, the church existed for evangelism, period, full stop. That was it. I get to college and I get exposed to John Stott and I start to hear, we are not just to proclaim the good news, we're to engage in good works. We've got to love and care for people. And that was a, that was sort of a big shift for me like oh okay you know what no it's not just evangelism it's also we got to love and care for people and then there was another dialogue got turned and it's like read the gospels and see jesus concern for the poor for the least the lost the oppressed right how is that not on my radar okay we got to pay attention there and then again a little while later it was justice and this was 15 years ago. It's not social justice. It was sort of international justice mission, care for the prisoner and care for the people who are, you know, who are just on the wrong side of, of, of the thug and the dictator and they're being oppressed. And it felt like when I was at this conference and everybody is talking about beauty and they're reading this book on beauty by uh, is it John O'Donohue or O'Donovan, whatever. And and everybody's, and the first time we're introducing ourselves, we're supposed to say the last time we've been around something beautiful. And I'm most like, oh, I'm out of my element here. Um, I said my granddaughter, you know, I, it, was, it was an easy answer. The last time I was captivated by beauty, uh, but everybody else had answers that were more profound in one's, I, I don't want to say that, but they were They've been thinking about beauty longer than I have. So is the evangelical world awakening to this? Uh, what did, did you get, did you intersect with this because, because you were also picking up on those currents? Um, I mean, you, you've been, you studied at Oxford, so you've got a little bit, you've got a richer uh, pedigree exposure europe cathedrals you you but i I, i'll stop there i didn't get the memo did you so uh yes and no so first of all i love your comment about reaching artists and how important that is in our witness which is where where you started i'll just make two comments on that number one is i think art the arts often are the leading edge of culture so if you want to know where culture is heading. It's what's happening in film. It's what's happening in the art world. And uh, when Christians are, are, you know, particularly evangelicals are late, we're, we're like always late to everything. <laughs> and if we're not attending to the arts, we're just like way behind um, culturally. The other thing is, um, I think many artists feel, many artists that are in the secular art world, um, 
don't think Christians take what they do seriously. And it's hard to take other people seriously if they don't take you seriously and what you care about. So, you know, showing care and involvement and engagement. At the time this uh, little book came out, Art for God's Sake, Frank, which is 2006, I'm just checking the date. Frankly, there weren't a lot of books like this. There, there were a few, and my father's done some writing in aesthetics, and Bill Edgar has, and there are a few other folks. Um, since then, there's been a big increase in Christians writing on these topics. I actually have just published a book on beauty called Beauty is Your Destiny. So I, I guess I did get the memo in that sense. Um, I think if you look at the history of apologetics, how you defend and articulate the Christian faith since like 1950 to now, roughly, um, you see a couple of different main moves. There was an earlier era where it was all about truth claims, and it was Josh McDowell, it was evidence that demands a verdict, it was that kind of rational apologetics, and that is important and it, it works and it works particularly well for people that are asking truth questions. Then really the question became, um, and, and probably still is, is, is Christianity actually good? Because you have a lot of um, uh, hypocrisy in the church and a lot of more moral downfalls. And some people think Christianity on certain ethical issues is on the wrong side of history. That's a very different apologetic discussion than what is true. It's actually a discussion about what is good and what is morally good and how do we know and, and how do we pursue it. I do think um, people want to see what is beautiful and they want to see beautiful lives. They want to see the gospel lived out in beautiful ways. In one sense, all of these questions are perennial. So the memo went out with, you know, uh, Plato, uh, the good, the true and the beautiful. Uh, the memo actually, I mean, it's it, it's there in scripture that these things are foundational and important. But in different periods, one of those things is more missing than another, or one of them is more the question that the culture is asking. And what I think about beauty is beauty actually intersects with all of the other topics in Christian theology. So why do we do evangelism? Well, because Jesus is beautiful and it's beautiful when you enter into somebody else's life to share, to share the gospel. That's why, that's why Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. There's a beauty in that. There's beauty in the plan of redemption. There's beauty in creation. There's beauty in the Trinity. So beauty is actually a way of talking about, one way of talking about everything else, but it's a particular um, lens on things. And maybe the last thing I'll say is, you know, a lot of people say that evil is a problem for Christian apologetics. Like, why is there evil in the world? Why doesn't God stop it? Why did he cause yeah. it? Why didn't he do anything about it? Why is there beauty? Yes. So that's a problem if you don't believe in God. Yeah. Your heart awakening to beauty, noticing it in the world. Like, is that just the material world? Like that, you know, yeah. those goosebumps you experienced at that sunset? Or is there is there a designer? Um, so I think beauty gives people some real questions to wrestle with that maybe they are already are wrestling with. And I, we want to be working where we can with the grain of what people are caring about and thinking about. And, and beauty is one way to do that in our uh, presentation of the gospel. Yeah. Well, all of that to say, it sounds like you wrote the memo back in 2006. I did not read it until just recently. So, uh... If you're writing a new memo, please, you know, you've got my email address, send it on. I'll, I'll be more current. Um, so I, I have what I would call my, 
I have uh, some final questions at the end, but I have my airplane questions. If I found myself sitting next to you on an airplane, what are the questions that I would ask? And and you you are a very interesting person, both because of your background and your training and the stuff that you've written. But for uh, for some people, you hold a a the position of one of the positions that would certainly put you in the College of Cardinals to be the Protestant Pope if there were such a thing. The president of Wheaton College is a, you are at the, at the epicenter of, um, of the evangelical world. So um, I have some questions about that. What, one question before we go there, and this sort of helped position you there. You were at uh, 10th Press for a number of years with Boyce. What did you go there to do, and and how was what what did what is your takeaway from your time with him? I was reading his books early on. I, I sort of like, whoa, who's this guy? Uh, I can't remember what I got. Some, I mean, his 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 commentary is not unlike yours. Obviously, these are his sermons that got turned into books, and uh, my experience was that I was briefly in the church. It was a very liberal church. It was a lot of works. It was a lot of legalism that was pretty um, flat, and I didn't like it. And then later when I came back and I'm hearing about Jesus and grace and all of this, and and also getting exposed to more the Word of God, being in Bible studies, we're actually reading the Bible and going, oh, wow, well, this is interesting. And Boyce was uh, was interesting in that sense. And then he was in all these battles, sort of circling with R.C. Sproul, and he was writing a lot about the power of the Bible. So I sort of was was reading this stuff early in my Christian life. So I, I guess I'm just interested, what were you trying to get close to Boyce? Were you just looking for a place that you could park and write books? How, how did you end up at 10th? Yeah. And yeah, first of all, don't ever sit next to me on a plane because I don't want to answer these kind of questions on a plane. I'm going to have my Bose Wave uh, headset on, and I'm going to be writing and editing and getting work done. So right, well, I, so I I say to people, you know, this is not original to me, but if I want to be left alone, I just tell people I'm an evangelist, and uh, they will leave you alone at that point, or start telling you their life story and apologizing for swearing, whatever. But you know, yeah. So fair enough. I will leave you alone if we sit next to each other on a plane. So, um, so first of all, I'm really glad you mentioned James Montgomery Boyce. He had a remarkable uh, public ministry of the gospel, um, primarily a 10th Presbyterian church. That's the only, really the only pulpit he served in. He had been up to that point um, doing some editorial work for Christianity Today, kind of assistant editor uh, in those days, working ultimately for Carl Henry, I think. Um, and um, he uh, candidated for 10th Presbyterian Church and very quickly became pastor there, the church that his parents had worshipped actually back in the day. So uh, super, super interesting that he came there in 1968, had a great ministry in Philadelphia, a lot of urban outreach, uh, cared for the needs of the community around him, uh, grew what became a multi-ethnic church, that was very well known for its preaching, very well known for its music ministry, but also very well known for its commitment to the city of Philadelphia and education, caring for AIDS patients, reaching out to the homeless, all those kinds of things. Um, 
I, I was finishing up at Oxford and I was eager to serve really kind of anywhere in pastoral ministry. And I won't go through the whole train of events, but Will Barker, who had been one of my faculty members at um, Westminster Seminary, worshiped at 10th Presbyterian Church. He actually was recommending me for something else, but asked me to write a letter to Jim Boyce because he said 10th is looking for somebody to be their preacher, be their evening preacher. And um, I think this could be a good fit. So please just write him a letter about this. Um, so one, one thing led to the next, and I had done very little preaching before I came to 10th. Um, I went to 10th for one simple reason. I felt called to be there. And it was just so clear. Um, I actually had other pastoral opportunities I was really drawn to, hmm. but I just had this sense. That's, that's not for you. It's for somebody else. What excited me about 10th was the opportunity to be in an urban context close to universities. And we had long thought, my wife, Lisa, and I, we love the city and saw ourselves in a city ministry, but also saw ourselves in a university context. Um, we weren't, you know, um, narrow about that. We were willing to serve anywhere. Interestingly, her parents worshiped at 10th in the mm -hmm. 1950s when Donald Barnhouse was the minister there. And uh, when Lisa's father was in medical school at, at University of Pennsylvania. So they, when we went to Oxford, they said, good, you should go to Oxford. So you could be a minister in a place like 10th. I chance. So um, that's, that's actually in the providence of God what it um, turned out to be. Hmm. I wouldn't say that uh, Dr. Boyce and I were particularly close relationally. And I did not come to 10th uh, with that goal. I, I had had plenty of other really great mentors. I've been so blessed. And thinking in recent weeks, particularly of uh, the big influence Tim Keller had on my life, we, he was my, my very first professor, my very first class at Westminster Seminary was with Tim Keller. And we've had a, uh, he's treated me like a friend, you know, since then. So I, I've had plenty of mentors. I didn't need a close mentoring relationship with James Boyce. What I did need was an opportunity to learn how to preach. I did need an opportunity to learn from all the people on the pastoral staff I could learn from about what it means to be a, a pastor in the city. And I definitely learned things about overall leadership of a large congregation and about the writing life uh, from Dr. Boyce. But the main thing that he did for me is simply encourage me. Um, and that's a, that's a huge gift from somebody very experienced in ministry. We had a good relationship. I, I'm not saying anything other than that. But he's he's very reserved person, as am I fundamentally. And and he wasn't looking for that personal mentoring relationship. It was more for me to just learn from being in the context. And that suited us both very well. And uh, we've had a um, longstanding friendship with the Boyce family. We're still very close with, with mm -hmm. Linda Boyce. But those are some of the things. And when I came, I had the best job in America. Really, I really did. Yeah. Uh, my only responsibility was to preach in the Sunday evening service at 10th Presbyterian Church to a very attentive audience. Um, our main choir uh, singing was in the evening. It was a thriving evening worship service. And then to preach in the mornings when Dr. Boyce was traveling. I didn't have any other responsibilities on my job wow. description. So I really then just learned to, the congregation well, You know, served in the nursery, visited Bible studies, went to learn what the homeless ministry was about, just immersed myself in the life of the church, but also had time to start getting a little better at preaching. Well, um, 
Yeah, that sounds like a, 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 a wonderful opportunity. And your time with Keller sounds obviously also, you have, you have been able to rub shoulders with some of the more significant um, leaders. So you now have a job I, you, as the president of Wheaton and as, as, as presidencies of colleges go, I, that's obviously one of the more interesting ones, but I have said for some time now, uh, especially to my three friends who are college presidents that, um, well, I say, I'm sorry, friends don't let friends become college presidents. Uh, this is such a hard job and it has become a very challenging job and you know far better than I do, um, but there's just a lot of headwinds that, that are out there. So I scribbled down uh, I scribbled down four. One was the collapse uh, of men. That's a little bit of an overstatement, but for the last 14 years, uh, the number of men enrolling in higher ed has gone down, and now women are, are getting more degrees at every at every level, doctorate, master's, undergrad, and 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 so we're just seeing this interesting challenge with men. There's the collapse in confidence in higher ed. Uh, a lot of people saying now um, they just don't trust, and this is not not Wheaton. They're just generally they're just saying higher ed is what's going on, and and you got the this cultural moment with a collapse of of truth, and now not just even a collapse of truth, but a collapse of belief in something like free speech. Like no, you don't you don't have the right to say that, and we're not going to go that direction. And then you've got uh, the coming demographic cliff that is uh, that is facing uh, all schools, and so we've been watching, and schools have been closing, and schools are merging, and and uh, there's a lot of stress in in higher ed. So I guess I, I would just ask, where is this headed, and what's the hardest part of what you're doing right now, and do you think that Christian institutions are better position to face what's coming or going to have even greater challenges um so uh, those yeah. are it, this is just this is your day job i'm asking yeah. about you know what, yeah. what are you doing and how are you doing it yeah well that's a pretty short list of challenges and in some ways some of the more challenging challenges aren't even on your list those, those okay are well there, I mean, we could we could list a lot of them. Um, and every week, it seems like I, I see something about how tough these jobs are compared to other jobs or whatever. So that's all that's all definitely true. I've just been thinking um, just this week about some of the history of Christian thinking about how we bring learning and faith together, what we sometimes call it Wheaton, the integration of faith and learning. And one of the things that was really striking to me is that some of the most articulate uh, voices for this. Cassiodorus in the early medieval period, John Milton in the revolutionary period in, in England, Comenius during the Reformation in, in Poland and Czechoslovakia. I mean, just go down the list. None of those times were promising times for the life of the mind. Or think of C.S. Lewis writing his famous essay, Learning in Wartime, you know, during World War II, like people don't know what the future of Britain is going to be. Like, Hitler is running unchecked, like it's just a terrible time. And yet at some of those very moments, people have said, we need to be careful with the cultivation of our younger leaders. We need to invest in them richly 
so that they can do their very best thinking and learn from the great traditions of Christian thought. And we don't know all the ways that that's going to play out in the coming years. We just know we're going to need thoughtful Christian leaders come what may. So I, I really think any time is a good time to be investing in Christ-centered higher education. I would say the same thing about uh, Christian education, you know, all the way through, all the way down to preschool. I, I had my first day of Christian education shortly before my fourth birthday. Hmm. And it's been a lifelong blessing to have that kind of training and uh, training and preparation. Hmm. Um, really interesting question about whether Christian institutions are better positioned for these challenges than other kinds of institutions. I'll start by answering that question globally, because I'm, I'm encouraged by what I see in the aspirations for Christian education in Asia, in Africa, a little less familiar for how it's developing right now in South America and Latin America, but there are places around the world including China, where people are building some of the great institutions that are 100, 100 years from now, if, if the Lord doesn't return sooner, which I hope he does, uh, we're, we're going to see the fruit of really great visionary leadership in the early stages of great institutions. So I'm, I'm encouraged um, at that level. I have to say, from a financial standpoint, by and large, Christ-centered higher education is not in a good place. Uh, if you look nationwide at what our endowments are, um, the enrollment challenges, um, you know, it's going to be very tough. So like humanly speaking and practically speaking, it's not surprising if we see a few of our key institutions close. So, so sad what's happening in New York City. What a, what a legacy there. And to lose that, it's a, just a huge loss, I think. Um, I have to say that my colleagues and I in the, for example, Christian College Consortium, were very concerned more than a decade ago at a lack of enthusiasm and support for Christ-centered higher education from the church and from Christian leaders. We're like, we gotta get some pastors together, help us understand what's happening here. Personally, I think there are lots of places to get a great education. I don't think every Christian necessarily should go to a, a Christ-centered college or university. But I do think um, we, as a community, have a vested interest in the success and in the flourishing of Christian institutions of higher learning. And that is always gonna require a, a financial investment. Going, at Wheaton College, going all the way back to the 1860s, you, needed, you couldn't just do it by tuition, you had to have people that had a vision for this and wanted to support it financially. It's a costly investment, but it's a really worthwhile investment. Um, and I think the, I think by and large, the evangelical community over the long term will get the Christian colleges and universities that they decide that they want. Yeah. Um, so I was scared that's where you were going. Uh, I thought, oh, I, he's going he's gonna to say that they deserve, um, you said that they want, so that they work for. Yeah. Hmm. So are you are are you optimistic with that? I I'm not yeah. I'm not asking are you hopeful. I'm just saying how how do you see the next how practically do you see the next 10 years playing out yeah. in the church and consequently in Christian higher ed? Yeah, so uh 
Another really good question. By, by temperament, I'm an optimist. I also happen to think, and this is maybe an important thing I should have said, when there are a lot of challenges for the church, when the darkness seems to be growing in other places, when um, you're disappointed by people that are drifting away, but you know, all of those things that you see, at that moment, it becomes more clear, not less clear, the difference that it makes to serve Jesus Christ and advance the cause of his kingdom. So there's an amazing opportunity in declining times to take a stronger stand and to, to make a clearer difference. I think that's the calling of the church. I also think it's it's the calling of institutions like like Wheaton College. So I'm I'm hopeful about I'm hopeful about that. I'm I'm hopeful on the global scale. I do think there will be more pain and suffering with some of our uh, Christ-centered institutions. I, I, I don't think that challenge is over. Um, so I, I remain hopeful, but I'm I'm remain very concerned. And I'll also say, um, as much as anything, what concerns my colleagues at Christian colleges and universities and in a different way also at secular institutions is the extreme polarization that we're seeing in America and in the evangelical community. So a unified church cannot produce a unified approach to, to Christian higher education. And I, I think uh, we're at Wait, our Say that again. I think you just, you said a unified church cannot produce a unified vision. Is oh, that what yeah. you Yeah, thank you. A disunified church cannot okay. produce a unified uh, vision. So to whatever extent there's division in the church, that's going to come over um, into colleges and universities. And by the way, uh, sometimes people get a bit frustrated with this or that on Christian college campuses hmm. um, and, and maybe sometimes with our students. Hey, what we're getting is what right. you're giving us. So um, and I, I don't mean just the church. I mean the culture. So. Um, I think it's maybe is a bellwether, um, but it, it's not a cause, it's a symptom, uh, is, is what I would say, is what, what you see at uh, Christian colleges and universities for the most part. So, um, but I think when there's, uh, we really depend on um, a more unified overall church. And when I say unified, at a place like Wheaton, what I'm talking about is a strong evangelical consensus across evangelical traditions and denominations about core principles of the gospel and the importance of the life of the mind so that we can come together on a campus like this, agree about the things that we agree about and truly agree about them, and also have the freedom to disagree about all the things that we disagree about in a way that builds a lot of, you know, character. And colleges and universities absolutely need to be um, committed to free speech. I've got this wonderful quote from Wheaton College in the 1860s. It's maybe from our 1862 catalog. And it basically says this, um, we do not expect students simply to repeat the perspectives of their faculty members or what they read in their textbooks. This is an institution where students are taught to think for themselves. Yeah. Now that's obviously in a Christ-centered context where we're teaching moral theology and we've got biblical right. studies like there's a there's an orientation here um but uh college or university is in in which in a way is different from the life of the church it's really a place for exploring ideas that's what it should be well uh, i i um i am back from africa a couple of weeks ago and was very encouraged by the church there 
making a difference. Now, there's, you know, you can see things, and I was with mostly um, Christian leaders, and you see the problems, and the church is a mile wide and an inch deep, and there's corruption, and there's, we were looking at issues of slavery and poverty and the church's role in different things. But then I was also with a lot of church planters and a church and pastors and and NGO leaders and just so encouraged by what they were doing and and I saw a church that was growing and 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 saw joy and I saw you know hope and I came away and you know there's no money I mean it's there's just so much poverty in God I was in Ghana in particular and average income is just a couple thousand dollars a year so a lot of poverty and and in the lack of infrastructure, roads, water, sewers. I mean, there's just, it's not there, but, but the church was full of people with joy. And I came back and I said, I, I just have to keep this perspective and I have to, and I, I'm finishing a book. I, by the way, I'm very jealous of your ability to produce the, the, at the, at the pace and level that you are. God bless you. Keep going. Maybe you got another 50 books in you, but I am trying to finish a book and I'm only a year behind my deadline, but I am, I'm just aware that I have to work harder to, to fight the volume and velocity of the culture so that I'm being shaped by the gospel and not being shaped by the challenges that are coming my way 24 seven. If I let them, I have to find ways to turn off that spigot and say, no, I need to be regrounded so that I can face this with energy and hope and be a, be the person that says, you know what, here's what I know. God wins. And uh, I don't have to be anxious about this. And it could get a lot harder before it gets easier. Uh, might not get easier for a long time. Might not get easier in the rest of my life. That's okay. Uh, everything that really matters has been settled. And I can uh, preach the gospel with reckless abandon. So I appreciate your leadership in that. Um, let me ask, um, back to this idea that you are, uh, you have a, a signature leadership position, president of Wheaton College. I was on a plane, speaking of plane conversations, I was on a plane four or five, it was pre-COVID. So this is, I guess I got to back up five, six years ago, flying to a conference. And not unlike you, I kept my heads down. It quickly was obvious to me I was surrounded by Wheaton faculty because they're talking about Wheaton and they're talking about this conference that we're going to. And I thought, I'm not going to say anything to anybody. I'm going to keep my head down and just do my work. But at the end, when we got up, you know, planes landed, I said, uh, I, said I, have to, I have two questions. The first, the, mo the most, perhaps the most utilitarian is, can I get in the Uber with you? You guys are obviously going to this event. And somebody said, uh, how did you know we're going to this event? I go, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. And, and then there was a little bit of fear. Like, you were a pa you're a pastor. Why didn't you identify yourself? I said, I had work to do. He said, I am curious. I said, how many of you are Anglican? I said, it, it, seems, like, uh, it seems like I've hit this Wheaton intersects the Anglican church. I said, uh, and all I think I think all of them were, or at least the Anglican and Jason. I said, okay, so what are you getting? Like that's not necessarily our our tradition. So what is 
feeding your soul and what are you looking for? Because I would not have said Wheaton is an Anglican school, but increasingly I think I, I see a lot of Anglican led people at CT and at Wheaton and in other places. So it leads me to ask, what dials would you turn on the evangelical church if you actually were the Protestant Pope and you could push us in, in different directions? Yeah, so um, just a brief comment on demographics. So about half of our students come from non-denominational churches. So broadly speaking, independent Bible church type um, churches. Then Baptists and Presbyterians would be the next two biggest groups. There would be some Anglicans and Episcopalians in the mix of incoming students. We happen to have several quite strong Anglican churches in the neighborhood, and that's really going back to the influence of Dr. Bob Weber, Robert Weber, yep. uh, the Canterbury Trail, and also Lyle Dorset, who had a very influential ministry here before going to Beeson Divinity School. So this sort of Anglican trend, it really goes back to the 1970s and was well underway in the 1980s. And a fair number of our students um, end up worshiping in Anglican churches, among many, many other churches in Wheaton and Chicago. And some of them also end up staying in those Anglican churches. Um, and it's definitely the case that we've got faculty members in some of these um, key churches. I think one of the things they are getting uh, is a sense of historical rootedness. Hmm which is really missing in a lot of contemporary evangelical churches. It's like all about kind of what's happening in the cultural moment now, but what about liturgical traditions? What about the history of the church? What about creeds and confessions? Like th mm -hmm. there's an appetite for those and those things can be really healthy in, in congregational life. Um, if I had to turn a dial, the dial I would want to turn is towards robust engagement and commitment to one's own theological tradition. I think we are healthier as an institution and healthier as a church more generally. If Baptists are quite strong in their Baptist convictions, <laughs> if Presbyterians know their Westminster standards, if Anglicans love the 39 articles, like if Methodists really appreciate Wesley and some of his unique contributions, because the closer you get to the core of those traditions, you're going to be getting very close to something biblical, healthy, reformational, uh, gospel-oriented. Now, I also want us to hold those convictions in the right way, like hold them strongly, but also generously. Like, I really want to learn from your tradition. Here's something I've always appreciated about your tradition. I think our tradition isn't as strong there. But when you start talking on that theme, that pushes me back to my confession. And I, it's in my confession. It's just not as brought right. out as much in my denominational tradition. So there's, but I think we're in a healthier place if people are more authentically what their traditions hold. Um, and I think the best of Christianity has, has really flourished when we have an appreciation for other traditions, but not by sort of minimizing our own traditions, but actually really holding to them. Thank you. Helpful. Um, one question before the final five sort of rapid fire uh, final answers. You preached at Christ Church. Uh, we had a grant from, from um, a foundation to look at mental health. And the, the request had come to us 
because the church, the, the, the statement was churches are more interdisciplinary today than universities, whether that's true or not. So we're looking to get a, a variety of people. And so we, we had a, a group that met together for, uh, it was supposed to meet together for like 18 months. And it's just, we ended up in COVID and it all sort of fell apart, but we had, uh, we had some psychiatrists, we had some psychologists, we had a neurosurgeon, we had social worker, we had a variety of people, pharmacy, big pharma, from sort of the pharmacological approach, talking about mental health and how the church better addresses mental health. So thank you. You preached because we've said, okay, we, we need somebody to say, um, Wow, I've I've had challenges. I've I've been knocked sideways in surprising ways, and um, and you stepped forward and and talked about a about a depression that you had gone through. So, one, thank you for that because it was it was exactly the kind of uh, okay we can let's talk honestly here about challenges. So, what what do you want to say about that, and how how, how what have you learned from that journey? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one thing, two things I'd want to say right away is it's normal to have deep, deep emotional struggles in the Christian life. And number two, the Bible has a lot of help for us when we do, and really speaks to that at great length, uh, you know, in the Psalms, in Job, and Jeremiah, and some other places. So uh, praise God for all of that. Then I think the third thing I'd really want to emphasize is there's a complexity to how we're wired emotionally, psychologically physiologically, and they all interconnect. Not all problems are spiritual problems. And even spiritual problems typically have dimensions that are emotional, psychological, and have physiological impacts. So we need to look at the human being holistically, not simplistically. And that's very important for us in a campus context to look at, you know, students in a holistic um, way. Um, I think, you know, I have talked and written in some other places about lessons learned. I think the biggest long-term uh, probably benefit for me is being just a little more sympathetic, maybe even sometimes empathetic to people that are having struggles. And it helps me a lot in my relationships, I think, not to say, you know what? I wish this other person was just doing better than they're doing. Instead, thinking, you know what? They're probably doing about as well as they can right now. Mm -hmm. And they need a lot of compassion and care and a day will come when they can do better maybe. But this is where they are right now. And that's what trying hard looks like when you're having the kind of difficulties that they're going through right now. That's a much better starting point than being a little dismissive or frustrated with you know, the emotional and other struggles that people are having. Wow, thank you, I, that, that's good. Okay, so um, we're coming up on an hour. So let me jump at, come at you with the final five questions, just looking for short answers, whatever sort of top of mind. Um, what do you do to keep going? And I read on your website, it was water skiing and poetry. So I'm, I'm looking for that level of answer. What, what keeps you sort of sane in a very high, yeah. high stress job? So water skiing is super funny. I've been water skiing one time 
Somebody saw a photo on the internet and I can't get it out of my bio. So my kids <laughs> laugh and laugh over that. But I like driving the boat. That's what I like doing if I get a chance. So just recreational. I, I like playing team sports a lot. And I'm fortunate to be able to still play basketball and soccer. Love playing disc golf. Love golfing. Uh, we love strategy board games. And I'm an avid birder. So I've got, oh. I've got a few different hobbies yeah. you know, going on, none of which get the attention that they deserve. I'm kind of a generalist, but I enjoy all of them immensely. Well, you're you're very John Stott-ish uh, with the birder thing. I know, right? We have uh, a couple disc uh, golf holes in our yard, and we've got a, we've set up our own course, and we do that. So much easier to travel with a couple discs than it is to travel with golf clubs. Yeah. Like it is just the way to go. So uh, what if anything is keeping you up at night? So I hate that question, Mike, um, but I'll say um, if I am up at night, which is not too often, I'm a very sound sleeper. It's going to be um, problems that have a relational dimension to them. And that's very similar to what you go through in uh, pastoral ministry. You've got people in churches. We've got people on college campuses. Most of the biggest problems in the world are people problems. So if it's going to be something, that's what it'll be. What is on your night? So let me ask two questions at the same time. I'm going to ask you, what have you been recommending more than anything else for the last couple of years? It could be a book. It could be a podcast. It could be a movie. It could be something. But I'm also asking you, What's on your nightstand right now? So I'm in a good place on my nightstand, actually, because I've cleared a bunch of things off. On my nightstand right now is Daniel Nyeri. Everything Sad is Untrue. It's a remarkable book, award-winning book by a yep. Christian author that we are going to use as our one campus, one book book this year. And I've been excited to get into that book. And I knew right away when I saw the title, this is somebody that knows their Tolkien and probably <laughs> went to Tim Keller's church, both of which are true. Um, I also have a book of edited poetry by Jill Baumgartner, uh, collected Christian authors. I won't be able to come up with the title, although I can see the cover. I typically do have a book of poetry on my nightstand that I dip into little by little and just kind of work away at. Uh, I think it's important, good thing for um, pastors to do. Um, you'll be very surprised. I think this is the book I've recommended more often in the last several years than any others. And I am always recommending books. I've always got a book that you should read. A book I really, really like is by John Dunlop. And it's about, I'm going to have to pull up the title here. I should know it. Uh, it's uh, yeah, Faith faith in the Face of Alzheimer's. That's what it's called. Uh, no, oh. Faith in the Face of Dementia. I just know so many people that are caring for people that are going through dementia. It's a wonderful book, very strong biblically and theologically, but also medically, psychologically. Uh, it's uh, finding, did I say finding faith? I think it's finding grace in the face of dementia, something like that. I just recommend it a lot because I, I know a lot of people that need help in this area. When I was in Africa, I was with a, a group, and one of the members of that group is works in the in big pharma. He's got a he was a pharmacist, but he's got a PhD in pharmacological marketing or something. So five years post pharmacy degree doing studying the field. And 
So he was sort of a fascinating guy in terms of all things medical. And he said, I just, you know, what, what am I not thinking about? What's, what's a big surprise? And he says, 11% of people at the age of 65 have some stage of Alzheimer's and they don't realize it. And 30, 30 some percent of 75 year olds and above have, let me, let me back up. 11% of people 65 and over have some stage of, of, of dementia of Alzheimer's and 30% of those 75 and over. And they often don't realize it. Yeah, and it's a it's a growing, I mean, it's obviously a growing challenge for us as we grow older and as we have people running for president who are well past that that date. Um, no, no comment expected there. Um, final, um, final question. What are you working on now? You just, you said you finished a book on beauty. Are you writing another book at the moment? Yeah. So I'm always got a few little things going on. I'm chipping away long-term at a commentary on book five of the Psalms, but it's not coming out anytime soon. Um, I have sent to the publisher a book on doubt. I have my doubts, it's called, and that's coming out of teaching I've done here at, at Wheaton College. And then this, uh, I'm thinking toward, I've got a few other little things going on, but I'm thinking towards uh, my chapel series this year, which is on um, Life with God Together, which is Wheaton's Spiritual Formation Framework. And um, that's my... I'm excited to get into that series as the fall starts. Okay. So. Great. Well, thank you so much. I've taken you a couple minutes over time, but uh, appreciate you and your thoughtful answers and your work at Wheaton and uh, God's blessing upon you. And may we meet in the owner's box of, uh, of I'll send this to the McCaskies. So there you uh, go. was uh, recruiting. May, We're may ready. We we're ready. It'll We're be ready. another win for the Bears. So invite sure. us. If you want Guaranteed. To win. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. God bless you.